You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Good morning and welcome to Providence. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning. My name is Lauren Schreiber and I serve at Providence as the director of the Providence Road Academy. Um, Again, if this is your first time at Providence, we want to welcome you. We hope that you felt welcomed as you walked in the door this morning. Um, And we're so glad that you are gathering with us this morning. Um, Providence is a group of people formed around a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so each week, one of the things that we're always going to commit to do is open our Bibles together because we believe that our Bibles have been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. So at Providence, we have been in a sermon series called King and Crown where we have been walking through the book of Mark um, for the entire year. I mean, we're going to continue in that series this morning. And through that series, we have been looking at the life of Jesus, but also specifically discussing how our culture tries to find its identity outside of Christ. So we're going to continue in that this morning, um, reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. If you didn't bring a hard copy, um, we do have some under the seats. You can look around and grab those. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home as a gift from us. So again, we're going to start in Mark chapter 11, verses 27. So once you're there, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I want to say thank you for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. 
we really hope that you enjoy yourself with us uh, this morning. Like Lauren said, we're continuing our work through the book of Mark. And before we pray, I want to do just a little bit of uh, where we've been in the last couple of weeks. And the reason for that is because I think this is one of those passages that it's necessary to have at least a little bit of the context of where we've been in order to rightly understand uh, what's being said here by the writer of this gospel. So a couple of sermons ago, if you remember, we are entering into Passion Week. We had 10 chapters filled with the first three and a half years or so of Jesus's life and ministry. And then this last portion of the book, uh, which is about five or six chapters, is really focused just on Passion Week or a little after if you consider the uh, resurrection and then ascension. But it's, it's a focus on this week of Jesus's life. And so that starts in chapter 11 with the triumphant entry. Very familiar to most of us, Palm Sunday, right? Palm Sunday is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then last week we followed that immediately with Jesus and the story of the fig tree in the temple. Shows up to the fig tree, no fruit on the fig tree, curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple, comes back and explains the fig tree. You know, that's, uh, that's my Sparks Notes version, by the way, but there's more to that. But I, I want to I point this out because chronologically there's a thematic, uh, there's a thematic uh, tool that's being used by Mark, namely that uh, how we receive the Lord Jesus the Messiah results in two different paths. The first would be if we receive him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then we receive a cleansing of the temple of our bodies filling with the Holy Spirit of God. This is the first. The second is what we're going into this morning, which the next few sermons will be a series of Jesus being attacked regularly by a various, like a various group and array of men in order to catch him, trap him, hopeful to arrest him and kill him. Eventually they fail miserably and must arrest him at night because they cannot find anything really wrong with them. They have to have uh, charges that are illegal and unlawful and therefore they arrest him at night with the Roman soldier's help. But nonetheless, the second portion is a representation of the rejection of Jesus Christ the Messiah by the Jewish leaders in his day. Now this is prophesied in the Old Testament. It's confirmed here in this passage and all of the other gospels. But for us, what I wanna mention before we pray, our focus needs to be what causes these men to reject the Lord Jesus? That serves as a warning and admonition to us that we would not allow ourselves to become hard-hearted in this way so that we would not reject the Lord Jesus. Because if you're a Christian in the room and you're saying, well, Court, I've already received Jesus, I would say, praise God. But what I'm talking about is not merely receiving him upon salvation, but receiving him in sanctification daily. Jesus told his disciples, you will daily have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is a reception that we have daily of Christ and his glory. And so when we read this, we can't get too high and mighty and think, well, the Pharisees, what dum-dums? Or well, the scribes, the chief priests, oh man, look how wicked and self-righteous they are. No, we have to ask ourselves, where is the scripture admonishing us not to be hardened that we might receive the Lord Jesus Christ as the crowds did? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what I wanna do is I wanna pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. But I wanna pray particularly for that, that the Lord would help us to have hearts that are receptive to the Lord Jesus this morning. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll jump in and pray. Father, we come now and we thank you first and foremost that your word is truth. You've preserved it for us. We thank you 
my God, that your word is powerful and that it is like a double-edged sword that it pierces and divides the very bone and marrow of our souls that your word is what we need and you have provided it. And we thank you that your word leads us to you, Lord Jesus, and that you stand now at the door and knock. And so we ask, would you help us to receive you each and every one of us, and also collectively all of us. Help us to receive you now and receive the blessing of your spirit as you cleanse the temple of our bodies and fill us with your Holy Spirit. As we repent of sin and trust in you, as we take of your table and we are fed by you, God, we ask that you would meet our needs, both those things that we know that we need and those things that we don't even know we need. We thank you that you are a good provider. And so we ask now that you would speak to us and lead us through your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's jump right in. Let's start with chapter 11, verse 27. There's a series of people. They, they are named here as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. I want you guys to think the church leaders, okay, as it were, in the town. These communal leaders, religious leaders in the town come to Jesus, um, Now, the chief priest would be considered more of an elite class, but I'm just trying to give us an idea of who these men are that come to Jesus here. And this is what the scripture says. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, what are these things? Namely, turning over the tables and destroying all the money changers' booths and cleaning out the temple. You gotta love Jesus and his gall. He does that, comes back the next day, and he's teaching in the temple. Totally unafraid of what they might do to him. By the way, they inevitably do to him in a few days. Goes right back and he's teaching, and they say, by what authority do you think you can do these things? Now, this is gonna be an attempt to discredit them, but I can't help but point out, this is a key moment that underscores what kind of leaders these men are. This group of men claimed the authority to approve or to disapprove of the rabbis of Israel. They were the credentializers, okay? If they said you were good, you were good. If they said no, then no, the people shouldn't listen to you. And as we discussed before, a few weeks ago, when we talked about glory, these men, Jesus said, always only received glory one from another. They did not care about the glory that came from God, but they were obsessed with man's glory. And so they credentialized one another to each other and they loved going into the marketplaces and being these religious men who had great credentials. And so they say to Jesus, who credentialized you? In other words, we've never said you have authority. By whose authority do you do and say these things? Now, as is always true, Jesus is about to set the stage. He's about to set the rules of the argument and they should should already walk away when he does this. I want you to see what Jesus does. So Jesus answers them. Verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. They should have not agreed to this, but here we go. Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why then did you not believe in him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority that I do these things. This question immediately turned the trap that they had set for Jesus back on themselves. And they understand it. They get back together and they huddle up and say, if we say that John the Baptist ministry was from heaven, then Jesus will just ask us, then why didn't you credentialize him? 
even though you knew that he was from heaven? Why didn't you believe in him? And if we say that he was from man, they look at the crowds and they say, these people love John the Baptist, who was just killed, right? They had lionized him, the people did, and the Jewish leaders hated him. And why did they hate him? Well, they hated him because of what John the Baptist said, because of the people that he stood up to, that just so happened to be the same people that they had become friendly with. And so they defer. Now, I want you to note here, they don't gather together and say, like a good council would, right? Do we think that John the Baptist's ministry was true? Do we think that he was a man of God? Was he according to the Torah? They, have, they don't care if it was true or not. What they care about is the opinion of man. They don't care whether John the Baptist was from heaven. They care about the political consequences of saying that he was. In other words, these men know that John's ministry was from heaven, but they will not tell the truth about it. And so you got to love this from Jesus because they say, well, we don't know. And Jesus then says, huh, it's interesting because it seems like you think you know if I, ha I should have the authority and you presume yourself a judge over my authority, but you can't even tell me if John had the authority from heaven. So maybe I shouldn't answer your question about where my authority comes from. They lost this exchange, which goes without saying, but I want to point something out here. Remember that these men would have well known that the Messiah was supposed to come. They would have well known that Jesus' claims to be that Messiah should be a celebratory moment. As the people are singing Hosanna, they should be thinking, this is what we've been waiting for all along. So what kept them from receiving him? Well, the scriptures seem to give us an indication in both this passage and the next by telling us that they feared the people. This is not just that they feared the people who loved Jesus. No, don't kid yourself. They feared the people who hated Jesus too maybe even more so. And the reason we know this is because why they hated John the Baptist. But I just wanna point out that this kind of fear sums up not just these men, but so many men across history that they cannot help themselves but succumb to worldly fear. And it keeps them from embracing Christ. These men knew that the ministry of John was from God and their worldly alliances would not permit them to believe on him publicly. John had set himself with God, and by doing so, he had, it had set him against King Herod. And King Herod was the powerful king of the Jews of the day. If you wonder why they didn't like John, just a couple of things from John's ministry. In one of his sermons, he looked to the Pharisees and these men as they came out to listen to him preach, and he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I want you to think about if you had signed up for baptism on a Sunday and you got that letter in the mail. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said, an ax is laid to the root of every tree that does not bear forth fruit. And you deem yourself children of Abraham, but you have no fruit. And until you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you should get out of the baptism line. This did not make them happy. But not only that, but maybe more importantly, John was known to have stood in the middle of the road and withstood Herod when Herod was riding in his chariots and told Herod that he was in sin because he had married his brother's wife. This is why John was arrested. This is why John was killed. Because John had set himself with God and the truth of God and inevitably set him against King Herod. And if these men, these religious leaders were to join with John, they feared what the results of that might be for their own political futures. They feared what it might mean for Israel. Let me say it like this. They thought they were saving Israel by not standing with John because if they stood with John, then maybe King Herod would 
get with the Romans to squash a rebellion and all of Israel would be destroyed in the midst of it. But I just want to point out, it is nearly impossible to overstate the lengths that human beings are willing to go to sear our conscience if we fear the consequences of the truth. We will do mental gymnastics, friends. It's sad, but it's true. If we know ourselves, then we know this. I told the nine o'clock service, I was reading a very boring book probably to most of you, but I was reading a book about the French Revolution and the time after. Um, I know, light reading. And uh, I ran across this. I couldn't help but think, be, just laugh as I was reading it that these, fr- these French ideologues and English ideologues who had denied the traditional family, denied Christendom, denied Christ, basically said all these, all these old traditions need to be cast off. And this led to the French Revolution, lots of blood running through the streets. And then it ultimately led to Napoleon, who stood in the gap as this vacuum was created. The famous quote is that Napoleon found the crown of France lying in the gutter and he picked it up with his sword. And so these people had looked at a country that had just been totally destroyed by their ideology, that everything that God had set up, they just needed to cast away. And rather than admit to that, the writers were trying to rationalize how it could have happened. And I kid you not, one of the writers rationalized by saying, maybe if Napoleon was just a vegetarian, this wouldn't have happened. I kid you not. That was a real argument that was made. I kid you not. And they weren't joking. This wasn't a parody. There was no onion back in the day. He was really serious. And I laughed at it because I thought this is the human condition that we will tie ourselves into knots with our justification, our explanations, our philosophical arguments, but all of it is just to keep us from facing our fear of what the truth might actually bring. If John's baptism was from God, that these men must repent. And if these men must repent, then there may be social consequences, political consequences that would follow. It may have meant that they must face Herod too and say no to him. It may mean they were gonna be ostracized by the in-group. It may mean that they were gonna be hard-pressed by the earthly powers to do so, and they weren't willing to have those consequences. So they weren't willing to stand in the truth. So they justified it. So they spent most of their time trying to trip Jesus up in weird arguments with him about things like we're gonna get into next week about if a man was married and then died and then his brother married her and then he died and then his brother married her and then he died six times down, who's married in the resurrection? That's what they spent their time on rather than receiving him like the crowds did because they could not face the consequences of what it might mean to really receive the Messiah. Now, if we fear man, we must think of this, we will inevitably wane in our fear for God. The Bible gives us these two exhortations. I wanna read them. This is from the book of Proverbs. The first one you're gonna probably know right off the top of your head, Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The starting line for wisdom, knowledge, is the fear of the Lord. If we drop the fear of the Lord, it's impossible to receive Christ because we won't see him as he is, but we will remain simple or dumb and see him as merely a prophet or see him as a universal good teacher. We have to start with a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 29, 25, now this is the opposite The fear of man lays a snare. Interesting, right? They're trying to lay a trap for Jesus and what trap do they step in? The snare of the fear of man. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, that's the key term right there. What do we mean by safe? Was John the Baptist safe when he trusted in the Lord? Because he ended up dying a gruesome death. Jesus stands in the truth and trusts in the Lord. Is he safe? But he goes to the cross. Okay, there's a, Another kind of safety the Bible's talking about here. 
Because confessing and proclaiming and admitting and standing in the truth, listen to me, will always come at a cost. It will always come at a cost. And because it comes at a cost, what we spend our time doing is obsessing over whether we're willing to pay that cost. So we ask ourselves, well, how much will it cost? How big of a deal is it? But I want to contend that what we don't do is meditate on the opposite end of that question enough, which is this, what will it cost to keep up the lie? That we should spend at least as much time meditating on. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, this is a quote from his, he says, if a man flees from the thing that he fears, he may find that he has only taken a shortcut to meet it. Let me read that again. If a man flees from the thing that he fears, he may find that he has only taken a shortcut to meet it. This quote explains perfectly what these men are doing when they don't receive their Messiah. Because here's what seems to be happening their fear, and I'm basing this on scriptural evidence, their fear is if they receive the Messiah, the Roman rulers will crush that as a rebellion and they will lose their nation. And so Caiaphas famously prophesies, one man can die for the good of the nation and he must die. And that's why he crucified Christ because he was afraid that if Jesus stood up and he really was the Messiah, that Romans would crush them. Little did he know that the prophecy was really about a spiritual nation that Christ would die to save one man, one second Adam. But to him, they, they considered themselves saviors by killing an innocent man. Same thing they did with John. They thought, well, we're preserving the greater good. But in reality, it was a shortcut. By 70 AD, the entirety of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple, not one stone left upon another. It was a shortcut by rejecting their Messiah to the thing they feared most, Israel was no more. And friends, we're in the same position that often we think that if we could circumvent our own suffering, if we could circumvent through self-preservation by not standing in the truth, that somehow that's gonna keep us from the hardship. But no, the only question is whether or not we will have the fourth man in the fire, not whether or not we will be in it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that the fire would come for anyone in Babylon. But the only question was whether they would bow and be in there alone or whether they would stand and be in there with him. And this is the question that we are all met with, is will we be in the fire alone or with the Lord Jesus? And it really boils down to whether we'll be like the crowds, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or whether we'll be like these other men seeking to have every reason why maybe he's not who he says he is, why maybe we can get away with being our own saviors. Now this, this pairs immediately into a parable. Jesus goes from talking to these men and then he starts speaking to his disciples in parable. And the reason that this is important to read together is because it's about them. <laughs> Obviously about them. And even they know it's about them because it says that they fear the people because they perceive that maybe he's talking about them. And I'm like, yeah, very keen. When you listen to it, it's about them. Listen to what Jesus says, starting in verse one of chapter 12. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower. He leased it to tenants and he went into another country. And when the season came, you should underline that. Go back to chapter 11 when the season for figs, right? Okay, so when the season came, he sent, us, he sent servants to the tenants to get from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. 
but he still had one other, a beloved son. So finally he sent to them saying, surely they'll respect my son. But those tenants said one to another, ah, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Jesus says there was an owner who built a vineyard, planted a vineyard. It was fruitful and beautiful. The vineyard itself had everything that it needed to be fruitful. He put tenants in charge to be, be there and care for the vineyard and build it up and care for its fruit so that when he came back, he might be able to enjoy it. And then he sent his servants while he's away in another country. And each time he sends his servants to gather the fruit, the tenants mistreat the servants. They beat the servants. Eventually they get bold enough to where they kill the servants. And so finally the master of this vineyard says, well, surely they won't do this to my son. I'll send my son in my own, my own image. I'll send him there and I'll, I'll have a signatory. This is the son and they won't do that to him. And instead they kill him. Now, of course, this is one of those parables that's not always true in the gospels, but that's very simple for you to understand exactly who each person is. If you just spend a little time, the owner and the planter of the vineyard is obviously God. The vineyard itself to bear fruit is obviously Israel that he had planted. The tenants that, is, that were assigned to care for the vineyard are clearly Israel and particularly the leaders of Israel themselves. The servants sent by the owner are the prophets who God continually sends to bring Israel back, to have bear fruit in according with who planted them. And each time the prophets were sent, they were beaten. Remember what happened to Jeremiah when he came to prophesy? It's been joked about a lot, but it's like, you know, when you hear the Jeremiah calling, here am I, send me, O Lord, it's really exciting. But then, you know, some of the Debbie Downers want to remind you that that calling also led to him getting thrown in a well and his eyes gouged out. And it wasn't great, okay? Very difficult times for the prophets. I just want you to know, prophets, by their very nature, do not preach what people want to hear. They are like your grandmother that got old enough to not care anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Just really sweet, you know, for most of her life, but then just got to the point where she's going to tell you exactly what she thinks because she's just like, oh, I'm not going to be here for long. You're getting fat, you know? You're like, hey, whoa, that's really intense. It's like, well, it's been happening for a long time, you know? The prophets did this. It's what John was. It's what all the prophets were. They came and they delivered messages that were unpopular and it got them killed. Jesus said, true it is said of the prophets of old that a prophet cannot be slain outside of the walls of Jerusalem, the city who slays the prophets. Israel had rejected their prophets. And then the son, of course, is Jesus himself. And he's saying to them, he's prophesying to them, you will, because you do not fear God and because you fear man, you will kill me too. You will seek to have, just like your first parents did in the garden, the garden itself without an owner. You wanna be the owner. The garden of Eden led to an expulsion. The garden of Israel led to an expulsion when they were sent to Babylon. The vineyard of Jerusalem led to destruction. And here we are, church, you need to hear this. You are the vineyard you are the t new tenants that Christ has given over the vineyard to. 
But what we need to be cautioned with is we also can fall into the same traps as all the people of God have throughout history. You see, these men were afraid of the outcome of standing with Jesus, their Savior and Messiah. They want to preserve Jerusalem, and yet the very thing that they were protecting is ripped from their hands. When we stand with the truth, we align ourselves with the owner of the vineyard. Listen to me, we cannot know the outcome of what might happen when we stand in the truth. Remember if, if, uh, Hebrews chapter 11? Some stop the mouths of lions, right? Some stand in the fire and are not burned. Some part the Red Sea. And then if you, if you read through the rest of Hebrews 11, and some are sawn in two. Some are in dens and caves of the earth in exile. Some are martyrs. Some are John the Baptist, and then some are Jesus, the resurrection of, in power. Some are like Peter when he's arrested and the angel shows up and he gets out of the jail. But remember, church history tells us that Peter ends up being a martyr, does he not? Some are Paul when a snake bites him and he shakes his hand off into the fire and everybody says, oh, the gods must hate him. And then his hand does not swell and they say, oh, he must be a god himself. It's a great time. But some are Paul when he ends up being beheaded in Rome. You see, friends, we cannot know the outcomes of standing in the truth. Suffering may come. But... Jesus tells us here an irrevocable truth. If we refuse the truth and remain in the lie, everything that you desire to preserve will certainly fall. And then will you be with him or without him in the ashes? Friends, I choose that we would be with him in the ashes. I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said, the man that has God and everything else has no more than the man who has God and nothing. You are wealthy if you have Christ. And you don't need anything else to add to the wealth. Nothing on the ledger would increase what you already have. But friends were bankrupt without him and no amount of self-protection, no amount of worldly accolades could ever make us really, truly wealthy. Now I wanna end with this. I wanna talk about fear and faith because most of us have know, when I say this, it should probably be common to you. The antidote to fear of man is what? A fear of God. There's quotes about this. You know, it's all over the internet. You say, well, if I kneel before God, I could stand before anyone right? Or if I fear God, then I fear no man, these kinds of ideas. But I think it's important that we note what it truly means to fear God, because is God advocating for us to cower and to hide ourselves in his presence? Is God interested in children who walk on eggshells in fear that the father might break out against them at any moment? I don't think so. And I say I don't think so because I know it not be true, not because I have fanciful ideas of God mostly being loving, but because the Bible tells us his disposition. Jesus taught us to pray to the goddess, to God as Father. Jesus taught us that our Father knows all of our needs and cares for us more than the sparrow. Jesus taught us that he desires to give us that which we ask for, and he rewards those who seek him. So what does it mean that we fear the Lord? Well, I think Jesus was teaching us when he taught us to look at God as father. You see, every child should have a healthy fear of their father. And by this, I mean respect, honor, reverence, understanding of his authority, understanding of his power and strength. When you're a child, the younger that you are, the better that this pans out, right? Because you kind of understand dad is strong and that's a good thing and also kind of scary, when I'm against him, right? 
But this is not to the exclusion of your father's love that he's strong. No. The fear of God has an obvious correlation to wrath and justice, but that's not the whole picture. Remember what David tells us in the Psalms. He says, and I quote, the Lord is my shepherd. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why would that be true? Now I want to say this because I know it'd be easy for me to get in trouble. When I grew up, spanking was normal. Okay, I'm sorry that offends you. That was how I grew up. And if you're doing that now or you're not, I'm not going to get into the argument, but I grew up knowing that it's plausible that if I did silly things, I could have met with the belt on my bottom, not just, you know, Jerry Springer style, but you know what I mean. Now, the rod and the staff are the belt. I want you to understand. Would you imagine me as a young man saying, Father, when I see your belt, my heart is comforted. Of course not. I don't, that's masochistic, first of all. Hopefully I'd get counseling if I said that. And David's saying something like that here. What does he mean, though? He's saying, I am comforted that my God is strong and he is able to both discipline me and protect me. It comforts him that the same staff that would guide the sheep like you and I and hit us when we're about to go over the cliff will also defend us from the wolves who would devour us. That God is awesome. And because he's awesome, there's a fear that we have of God that we think, oh my. It's that moment in the famous Lord of the Rings where, you know, Bilbo's trying to argue with Gandalf over the ring and he basically stands up in this little tiny hobbit house. Listen, all of that is, by, is giving you a picture of where we are. We're living in a hobbit house and Jesus came and met, he met with us. And then these people are trying to argue with him and in a moment he, he's standing up and showing them, you are tiny and I am large. Remember what Gandalf says to him? Do not take me for some conjurer of of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And then, of course, like the little hobbit goes, I'm sorry. You know, and he kind of, Jesus is not trying to rob these men. He's trying to help them, and they will not have it. See, if they had a fear of God and knew who they were talking to, like Jesus told the woman at the well, they'd be asking him and begging him for everything he had to give. You see, friends, the Egyptian pharaoh did not fear God and the wrath and justice of God was poured out through all of Egypt through the plagues. I want you to think of this. What was Israel's response to this? Celebration. Crying and weeping, God saved us. Why is this so? They were delivered from tyranny because they feared God. Fearing God includes trusting God. It includes faith in God. These two are, they're inextricably linked together Friends, because God is strong and he is fearful and awesome, we can be secure because he cares for us. Listen to this. This is probably the best passage to show you the connection of fear and faith. Hebrews 11, verses six through seven. We'll come back to verse six. I'm gonna read it, but then I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to it. Without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Listen to this. By faith, underline that, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, underline that, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So did Noah build a boat in faith or in fear? Yes. Both. These are inextricably linked. He had a fear of God and a trust in God. And friends, this is what we must have if we are to guard ourselves from a fear of man. Verse six tells us that if you 
are to please God, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Listen, friends, part of knowing that God is your father is you believing that he rewards you to seek him and pursue him. This is not merely wrath and justice. It's fatherhood, care, and love. He loves you, cares for you. Jesus shows up to Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you city who slay the prophets, how I would gather you like a mother hen grabs her chicks, but you won't have me. He's saying, I want to do good to you, and all you want is to reject me. This often, friends, is our view of God is both too small and we view God as though he were like us, as though he were petty, as though he needs to prove a point with us. God is God whether you and I sing after gathering or not, and his glory is forever. But he wants and desires for us to know him and to reward us. He desires for us to experience the love of a father, and he calls us to himself. So I want to end with this thought. Where does the rule of man, or the fear of man seek to rule your heart? Where does the fear of the unknown seek to rule your heart? Where does the fear of consequences seek to rule your heart? The answer, if you find those areas, is to receive the son who's coming into the vineyard sent by his father. Receive him. The Bible says this, lo, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens unto me, I will come and I will sup with them. Or Jesus says, come to me, everyone who is weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The son shows up into our lives and says, I will give you life. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper here in a moment. I will satiate your hunger. I will satiate your thirst. I will satisfy your heart. And the question, the book of John tells us in chapter three, after the most famous verse, that the father did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. But the world rejected him. It saw the light, but loved darkness and rejected, did not receive the son. And so they were condemned already because they did not believe on the name of the son of God. It always comes down to will we receive the son, as he knocks on the door of our hearts. Friends, my guess is that we have many things that we are unwilling to allow Jesus to come in and claim ownership of in our hearts because we think that we are preserving ourselves in some weird, awful, squirrely way. We think that we can do better with the mess that we've made rather than letting the master of the vineyard in. Or, letting him in the temple so that he can clean house. He does a great job of it. And then he fills us with his spirit. All we have to do, listen to me, is not pick up a broom. You and I aren't good with brooms. All we have to do is not try and work out the sacrifices we're gonna make. We're not good with sacrifices either, by the way. All we have to do is fall down, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord lay down the palm branches at his feet, peace that he brings, and we come in peace and not hostility. The king's son has shown up with amnesty in his hand and we say, we receive him. We receive the son. And in so doing, the promise of God is that we receive grace, 
upon grace upon grace. I'll finish with John chapter number one. John tells us, we received the law through Moses, but grace and truth came in Jesus Christ. (laughs) The scribes, the elders, the chief priests, they had the law, but they could not give what only Christ could give, grace and truth. Bring you to the truth and extend you grace. My prayer this morning is that we would receive him. And if you have not received Christ, I want to tell you, I shamelessly, I implore you, receive the son this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, as we begin to get ready to take of your supper, we confess to you there are many areas of this vineyard where we have let things go. We've let weeds grow up. We are not bearing fruit in our lives. We confess to you this, my Jesus, and we call and ask you, would you come into the vineyard? We open the door. Would you come and sup with us? Would you prune in us that which needs to be pruned? Would you cut out that which is dead? Would you bring rain and growth to that which needs to bear fruit? My God, we receive you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you'd soften our hearts that we might receive you, both through the taking of communion and the singing of worship, through repentance and through faith, we receive you, Lord Jesus. Bring the times of refreshing that only you can bring and keep us from our pride. In Jesus' name, amen.